You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, I sit down with Alyssa Ravazio, founder and CEO of HipCamp. We chat about navigating the challenges of founding a company, mining government data, and the role the sharing economy will play in the future. Enjoy the episode. You're the founder and CEO of HipCamp. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how Hip Camp came about? Sure. So I grew up camping in California. My family would go on big uh, week or even two week long trips. So it's been a really important part of growing up. And uh, Hip Camp really was a way to solve my own frustrations around planning my own camping trips. Every time I wanted to go camping, it was so difficult um, that I would almost give up again and again. I would have 30 tabs open in my browser, looking at the state parks and the national parks and the county parks, trying to figure out where to go. And there was one trip in particular where I decided to go camping by the ocean for New Year's Eve. And um, that process of trying to find a site by the ocean, regardless of who, which agency happens to maintain, it was really difficult. Um, almost gave up, spent hours researching, finally chose a spot, arrived and realized despite all my hard work, um, I'd missed the most important part, which was that everyone was there for surfing. They all had their boards. Oh. And the last thing I'd done before leaving my house was take my surfboard out of my car. Because I've read the whole State Park website and I presumed they would tell me if right. that was something so important. Um, and driving back the next day, I was thinking about how State Parks were actually threatening to shut down uh, about 30% of their system. They ended up shutting down, I think, closer to 5 or 10%. But um, it was due to lack of revenue. And I was like, well, if we made it easier for people to get outside, that would be good for me personally. Mm -hmm. And we could also help keep the parks open, connect more people with nature. And that was how Hip Camp got started. Right. And what's your background before that? What kinds of jobs did you have before you founded a company? Um, I have really only worked in very, very small teams and startups. So I've always kind of been helping start uh, companies. And uh, in college, I created a major about the Internet. So I've always been figuring out how to best harness the internet to create uh, change that right. I want to see. Right. And so in most cases, you're pulling data from um, state and federal mm -hmm. databases. How are you finding the, that process and what are some of the big hurdles? So it's a, it's a whole big world out there. We work with lots of agencies. So um, it, it really varies. Some states don't have any database we can query. Mm -hmm. And in that case, we actually have a team of researchers and they're reading the website and writing down, um, creating our own data set oh, after wow. reading. That's actually how we do almost all of our work. Um, there's some cases where um, like Oregon has a really cool API for their state parks with photos and they were really helpful um, when we expanded into Oregon. Um, so the static data is, is readily available and, and publicly accessible. Um, one of the biggest challenges, though, has been um, accessing the real-time data, um, specifically about availability. So okay. is the campground booked uh, next weekend, or are there two spots left? Um, this is public data. It happens to sit in the servers of a private company that has contracts with the government. And our biggest challenge this year has been trying to gain access to that data. Um, for a while, they were letting us access it. Uh, we started advocating for the these United contracts States to require more open data. They didn't like that. Now we can't access it. Um, the good news is in the future, we'll be able to when these contracts take hold. But until then, we're still really trying to find a, a good way to access this public data. Right. And you recently started offering land sharing. Mm -hmm. what, what is that and, and how does that work? 
So land sharing is this idea that there's a lot of land out there that people own. Um, sometimes they're struggling to find ways to pay for the mortgage or the property tax. And there's a really good revenue stream out there just from campers who want to get outside. Um, it's kind of a new way to get outside because you're not going to a developed campground where, you know, there's a ranger and there's, you know, 40 sites and we're all in a, in a circle. It's, it's really a, a more... Uh, open and free experience where you're often getting um, like a, a gate code to a 600 acre ranch mm -hmm. and getting to go camp by yourself on the side of the river. Um, and so it's about connecting people seeking that more unique uh, camping outdoor experience with landowners who are interested in earning some revenue um, while keeping their land undeveloped. So a lot of the landowners we work with um, have already had this idea. We're just empowering them to make it happen. And they love it because there are other choices involve um, more extractive or destructive revenue streams like logging mm -hmm. or mining or, or development. And so this provides them a way to really keep their land natural um, while also making some revenue. Right. And have you encountered any regulatory issues with that? How do you deal with, with insurance or, or something like that? Yeah. So in, insurance is definitely the, the number one concern. Um, luckily, the sharing economy has been around for a while now, we're I think in you know, year six or seven maybe. So um, we're actually working with an insurance company that you know is providing a group policy, so any landowner oh, okay. can sign up and get coverage, and um, that covers the camper as well, so that everyone is, is fully covered when they're um, on site. Uh, the other regulatory challenges that aren't coming up yet, but I presume will, are more around county. Uh, and kind of civil codes, like, can I have people on my land? What kind of, you know, septic system do I need? Um, we're trying to be proactive and work with counties ahead of time to um, show why this is good for the local economy. We're bringing in more, you know, tourists and, and more ecotourism. So it's good for the environment. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how, how, how that goes. But it's definitely a bit of a gray area. Right. Yeah, that's interesting how it would be like um, separating business districts and cities or whatever, and that sure. expanding out into personal residences. Yeah, a, a lot of our, our properties now, at least the initial ones, are commercial already. So mm -hmm. um, the, the place we've seen the most traction so far is organic farming. Oh, um, it's like the strawberry farm by the ocean or the kale yeah. farm up in the mountains and these places that have, um, you know, commercially zoned area, a brand that they want to get out there. They often go to farmers markets. So they love this as just another way to connect with their, their consumers. And they even sell them CSA boxes while they're there. Right, right. I was, I was reading a story the other day about a similar situation where you could pay to go stay at, at someone's farm mm -hmm. and work on the farm while you're there. Totally. And, you know, and people were joking about why would you want to go on vacation and work? <laughs> but, you know, what a great experience it was. And yeah, yeah, yeah we're so, really so excited about connecting urban people to, to rural people yeah. and having that kind of cult exchange. There's so much I think both parties can learn from it. And again, it's really about using this kind of um, tourism or recreation to fund uh, the conservation of these spaces. Yeah. And what kind of role do you see the sharing economy playing in the future? That's a big question. I think, um, you know, I, when I was studying the internet in college, one of the things that I was most excited about was just the power it gave the individual um, to connect with other like-minded individuals to um, you know, do a transaction. So I think before the internet, it would have been really hard to know mm -hmm. that there's someone down the road with a car, with a house, with a surfboard, with a beautiful piece of land that they'd be happy to let me rent or borrow for, for the night. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the internet, we're, we're so empowered to find these people and to connect in this really, in this really new way. And I think that that's going to result in um, a society that's much better organized, much more efficient, hopefully a lot less, um, 
buying and, and waste and consumerism and just a lot more of a, um, a community feel. I, I like to think of Marshall McLuhan's Global Village and yeah. imagine that the sharing economy is really um, a, big, a big step in making that real. And kind of shifting gears just a little bit, what was the experience like of founding a company? What kinds of challenges did you face and were there any surprises that Lots. you came across? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, I've, so I've always loved starting companies. I think my first company I started, I was nine. It was a film production company. My employees were my sisters. They nice. were not paid, but we had a lot of fun. <laughs> and, you know, I think in this case, this was my first, um, you know, according to the government, you know, actual civil corporation. And, you know, I think definitely the process was one where you go through a lot of self-doubt. Yeah. Right. You start with this idea and it's so exciting. And then when it comes time to starting to build it, um, you start to wonder, you know, am I crazy? Because like, you're doing something no one's ever done before. That's the whole thing yeah. with a startup. And so I think a natural part of that process is going through, am I totally crazy for thinking I can do this? Especially in our case, learning, oh, no one's done this because there's a monopoly that sits on all the money. And like learning that and being like, okay, so why do I think I should do this. Right. How can I, how can I, like, why would I be the person to try to run through this wall? And so, you know, I think for any startup, it's, it's going through this natural cycle of self-doubt where you realize no one's done this for a good reason. <laughs> and maybe you're the person to break that cycle and, and, and do it for the first time. So in my case, I spent, uh, I think, a solid six months really on my own. Mm -hmm. being a solo founder. Um, and that was definitely the hardest part because when those moments hit, there's no one no right. one to talk to you and say, yeah, I'm crazy too, so we're crazy together. Yeah. And um, it's been a really cool process um, every consecutive month since then really gaining new members on the team, uh, co-founder, we're now nine people, and we're all crazy together. We all think we can do this together. And so I think that that team building makes it a, a little easier every day. What kind of advice would you offer someone um, wanting to start a new company and building a team? And, and would you recommend getting a co-founder sooner than later? I think, you know, team building, it's, it's, uh, it's like creating a family. <laughs> so you're, you're choosing people you want to spend a lot of time with. Um, and that cultural fit is essential. I think um, one big thing I've learned this year is you really want to hire for superpowers um, when you're small, it, it's tempting to try to hire someone who seems like they can do a lot of things. And, and it's good to have versatile people. But, you know, as you get a little bigger, like 5, 10, 15 people, you can start to hire someone who definitely has weaknesses, but they have this superpower that none of us have. And now other people can help cover their weaknesses. And as long as we're aware of, of what those are, it's, it's, it's a lot better to have those strengths of superpowers come on. Um, in terms of co-founders, it's you know, I think, like I said, for me, the hardest part was before having a co-founder. As mm -hmm. soon as I had a co-founder, now we're crazy together. Um, but also you don't want to, you know, choose the wrong person just because you want to have someone in the trenches with you. So, um, you know, I think the, the best thing you can do in my case, what I did was I built HipCamp. I built my, you know, I built the website all on my own. And then I just was like totally embarrassed at how it looked, but I didn't, it was like, okay. And so I emailed it to like 50 people. And I just, you know, took that first step of saying, here's what I'm kind of thinking maybe we should build. And by presenting it to kind of my, my small group of friends, they were able to share it. And then mm -hmm. uh, my co-founder came through a friend of a friend who had the same idea. And so I think if you want to find a co-founder, you should just start building your company and, and, and put that out there and trust they'll find you. <laughs> oh, that's great. So for my last question for you, something a little more broad, what people or projects are you following? What are you finding personally interesting mm. right now? So I just 
had this amazing uh, conversation and session around arts and economy and how are we compensating artists and, and how is this working on the internet and really, really deeply respect Amanda Palmer and Zoe Keating's work on this issue. And um, back when I was in college, I actually remember writing essays on this and being so fascinated by this topic. And I think it's an interesting one where there's a lot of change happening right now, but the, um, the current state we're at is not one we'll be at for very long. I think we're going to see some really big changes over the next few years around how we, you know, compensate artists for their work and how copyright works and, and how we, um, you know, track this or, or, or reward for this. So that's, that's something I'm really excited about. I would say the whole government open data movement is something that I am very passionate about. I think one big uh, thing I underestimated this year was how deeply entrenched interests are who already work with the government in not opening up this data. Mm. So there's this education gap um, where a lot of the government decision makers don't know what an API is. They don't understand why data is a valuable asset. And I thought that was a challenge. And what I learned is that's part of it. And the other part of it is there's someone who's you know maybe already working with them who knows why this data is valuable and they're not going to want to give it up. So right. I'm really inspired by the work at the U.S. Digital Service in providing, I think really for in a lot of agencies, the first time technical expertise that has their interests completely aligned with the government and it doesn't have a, you know, an ulterior motive or, or something and can, and can work with you know, the government on that. Right. And when you were talking earlier about um, the changing in compensation for artists, mm -hmm. one of the things I think Amanda Palmer is um, taking part in is a, a group called Patreon. Is that how that's said? I'm not sure right. if I'm saying that right. But it's sort of a crowdfunding for the artists. Is that kind of how you see that that playing out? Ooh, um, yeah, absolutely. It has to be, I think, the community um, supporting artists and, and being able to connect directly. Again, that's what the internet's so wonderful at, right? It's disintermediation, yeah. cutting out all these middle people we don't need. And so definitely the solution will be, you know, straight from fan to artist and, and having that transaction occur without all these other rules and people and structures and, and labels and organizations. So um, I wouldn't say I have the solution. I wish right, I did. Right, right, I'm, right. I'm very excited to learn more about, you know, what people are working on in, in that space. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, thank you very much for talking with me today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You can reach Alyssa on Twitter at A-L-Y-R-A-Z. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Oh.